Come up, everyone, to uh, session N of of M in the uh, in the brain of the firm reading group. Um, this time we are. So I think the, the last session we did a slight recap on part three, which was the the end of the book proper. Um, and did we get to start the summary of part four? I don't think we did. Am I am I imagining that? Uh, I think that's correct. Yes, we haven't. Okay, so we're going to start from the summary. Okay, um, we'll be moving on to part four, which is uh, it's unique to the second edition onwards. It's uh, an account from Beer's perspective of what went down in Chile. Um, so this this is all all of the actual main meat of the book is behind us, and we get to have some uh, insight into the. Uh, Chilean process and the uh, this this uh, case study writ large. Um, so I'm going to read this summary of part four. It's it's only a page, so it's a nice short one. Um, each of the summaries has incorporated the advice to reread the earlier summaries, which we're not going to do. Uh, the last summary, which introduced part three, ended the old book by saying that chapter 15 was very much a final chapter, and that it sounded a bit metaphysical, as if an answer to these two allegations came the work in Chile which was founded as to its cybernetics on the original manuscript of this then unpublished book. Hence, chapter 20 and not chapter 15 is now the final chapter. As to the metaphysics, nothing could have been founded in a more profound reality than the Chilean process. The first four of the following five chapters tell a story which is organized according to, it, to its basic chronology. A project began in Chile late in 1971 under the aegis of President Allende, and chapter 16 accounts for its inauguration. Chapter 17 and 18 develop the story and continue up to the extraordinary, oh, there's a typo there in the word extraordinary, uh, extraordinary events of October 1972, which with hindsight appeared to mark a watershed. In chapter 19, that story is concluded. There seems little point in offering further analysis here in summary of a chronicle which steadily unfolds itself in the text. The final chapter proffers a prospectus for the future of applications in managerial cybernetics. It does not contain any prescriptions, simply because it does not make any predictions. Instead, chapter 20 prepares two models, which, it argues, are basic to the innovatory management of any such future. Firstly, it ought to be expected that the impetus to radical change derives from a critical situation. If so, it is necessary to comprehend the nature of crisis itself in the kind of society by which the last part of the 20th century is characterized. Secondly, and because of these very societary trends, it is of the utmost importance to determine what the progress to which all aspire actually means. The model put forward for this is based on the Aristotelian concept of entelechy rather than, for instance, per capita income or life expectancy. Thus, the book ends with consideration for the perilous future of a planet already torn by almost unimaginable, unimaginable dissensions and cruelties, which are perhaps more of a function of gross mismanagement than of brutish greed. Surely the destruction of the Chilean democracy, on which this part is based, is an example of the working out of a counterproductive policies by which maybe well-intentioned superpowers conspicuously mishandle their power and snuff out the viable system. Um, so that last bit seems a bit, yeah, I don't know, like, I mean, 
greed is absolutely a fucking part of it. It's it's uh, maybe not so much the mismanagement as the uh, voracious and horrific fucking uh, frank evil of these fucking people is uh, is more of a maybe more of a factor than than beer is willing to entertain. But um, I don't know any any remarks on on this summary. Um, there's there's not not a lot there really. Um, any hands? Let's see, Jeremy, go for it. Yeah, the part about crisis and critical situations, I think is, with the exception of status quo, which is unpublished, I think this 20th chapter about crises, teasing out what he's saying, which is difficult because the chapter is very hard to understand, gives a Marxist some of the most valuable tools that beer has to offer to a Marxist. I think this idea of Beer's concept of the crisis, how it works, and the mechanics of it are are some very valuable tools. I, I wish there was a way to condense it, make it easier to understand, and put it in a pamphlet. Yeah, we can we can get into pamphlet brain territory with uh, if we start to understand this stuff thoroughly. Um, yeah, I'm in agreement. I think this. Uh, it, this this focus on crisis and the understanding of crisis as a thing in itself is um, is is going to be worthwhile. Um, let's see who we've got, Matt. I, I'm only struck uh, by here and uh, you know in the last part of uh, um, uh, um, uh, designing freedom. You know, just what 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 a good sport like beer is about about all of this. You know, like he's he's just on to the next thing. You know, very very much. Uh, um, you know, like he says, like system four is supposed to work. You know, oh, when, you know, when 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 one uh, possibility you know um, uh, closes off, yeah, you, you just go to go, go, go to the next one. Um, uh, uh, and yeah, I mean, l- 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 like uh, I, I think it's also just like you know, I guess a certain level of like discipline of just like that. Nah, you know. Just always in strategy mode, and yeah, like uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure he also does believe in evil though. Like he's a spiritual dude. Like you know, I, 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 I don't think he you know like sucks all the life out of these things. I think it's all just like you know, he, he kind of segregates like that in his head. And he's like, no, I'm in strategy mode. You know, like also you know, just a, just a wonderful. There is an optimism in this that that, that is just you know, it's a little infectious. It's great. Yeah, yeah. There's um, I. Yeah, the um, I like I do like the optimism. Um, I sort of it seems that um, beer has that kind of uh, I don't know, just general sort of liberal thing of like believing that every everyone really wants the best sort of outcomes and stuff. And I think that can sort of erase the kind of like um, actual conflict like the real material conflict of interests um that's going on there but there is some i think there is it it, it can be a useful antidote as well um because like even marx gets at this sort of thing of like the position of the capitalists is is even like a structural thing in itself it's not always just about their personal sort of villainy and so on like the um, there's that line in the grinderisa about like uh, everyone including the capitalists being disciplined by an inhuman power um, so there's there's a kind of structural and systemic evil that is not personalized, um, but also you know what you know some of these the the, the capitalists really are personally responsible as well or whatever. It's uh, so it's, it's a bit of both, but I think yeah the the, the optimism can certainly be appreciated. Um, definitely. Um, let's see, Kyle. I uh, appreciate you know the sort of ground work that he lays down for 
thinking about the question in chapter 20 when he says, uh, it ought to be expected that the impetus to radical change derives from a critical situation. If so, it is necessary to comprehend the nature of crisis itself. Because, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, uh, and he was like, well, this, this communism thing is all well and good, but what is your roadmap to communism? And I was like, there's no... You, this is that's not how it works <laughs> there's no roadmap that's not you can't plan things like that anyone who's ever said there's a roadmap to communism was bullshitting because you know obviously we had like these state socialist countries be like we'll reach communism in 10 years you know this kind of thing but that was that was bullshit that was complete bullshit uh, what we need is an understanding of crisis more than we need a roadmap uh, you know, we under, need to understand our competencies and, and what we can do and how to deal with crisis, not uh, point A, B, C, D, and then at the, the point E, you get to communism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, right? Like, it's that um, that sort of quaint thing that you get in, like, I don't know, North Korean propaganda or whatever. It's like, you know, in, increase goat, goat's milk production to, to achieve communism or whatever. Like, it's a fucking tech tree in, in civilization or something. Um yeah, I think it, what even Beer's whole thing with viability and adaptability and stuff is all about this, like kind of ride the lightning kind of dynamic, where um, like you, you just it informationally can't know the future. Like there's no there's no real sort of plan. I guess like it's also that that um, that military thing of like planning is worthless. Or, no, like pl plans are worthless, but planning is is worthwhile. That like it's it's the exercise of doing dynamic planning is vastly more important than the plans themselves. Um, and so like these kind of military strategists, they do, they do planning as a process to like increase their understanding of the situation. But then the art, the artifact that falls out the back of it, like the plan is basically worthless to them. Um, and similarly, yeah, any kind of blueprint for navigating and an entirely unknown contingency or like a recursive set of unknown contingencies. You just you just don't know it. You know you can't possibly plan for it. You can plan for your adaptive strategies though. Like you can you can sort of game theory out like what what you think might be the best ways to approach the the strategy of riding the wave because um, you're just never really going to know what the wave is. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, let's see, Matt. I just want, uh, I, I, I found that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that he even necessarily thinks that, like, you know, everyone, like, wants for the best, um, uh, so much as, like, I think uh, he adopts some, uh, um, you know, uh, a pose that, yeah, that I think is useful, that, that uh, your enemies are a problem to be solved, as opposed to, like, you know, uh, any of the, like, it can be useful to, 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 to think of them as, uh, uh, you know, just these, Horrible, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, Soviet caricatures of, of of pigs, and like, you know, that can be good for morale. But I mean, ultimately, you know, like, uh, yeah, they, they're going to oppose you. They're going to oppose you as hard as they can. You know, it's kind of all you need to know. And like, you know, the, the, you don't necessarily need to think about their internet, their internality at all. You know, you just got to think about uh, uh, their, you know, like uh, uh, behavior insofar as it's predictable. Yeah, absolutely right. They're they are they are simply people. Um, Actually, I mean, even beyond that, right, like the something I appreciate about Beer's analysis or just about cybernetics in general, right, the analysis of systems and like social systems as complex systems and so on, is that it sort of brings a lot of the stuff back down to earth, right? That like, instead of the kind of Marcuse, Foucauldian kind of like notion of like the state, state and capital as a all pervasive Manichaean evil, 
that is unconquerable because it is everywhere and everything at the same time. We instead kind of see these things as like, no, they are they are systems, like they're made up of component parts. They're they have dynamics, they're kind of observable, they're they're not they're not knowable in their entirety, but you can you can see that you can see the you can see the like blood flowing in the veins, right? And you can you can identify points at which to to intervene to halt the reproduction of the thing. Um it uh it it shrinks the problem quite a bit, right? Um rather than kind of yeah, thinking of the thing you're up against as being the entirety of the world, you know, we would instead identify the the concrete sort of systems in the world that need to be inter intervened in. Um which is, you know, it's 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 easier than boiling the ocean. Um yeah. Um okay, shall we move on to chapter 16? Yeah, cool. Um so I'm going to read out uh, probably the first page and a little bit of the, f the second page because um, it, it sort of frames where, where Beer is coming from in a lot of this. But then for a lot of the rest of the chapter, we'll kind of skip along to the main plot beats because uh, a lot of it is basically, oh, I, I spoke on the telephone with whoever and then they said something else. And it's fairly straightforward autobiographical stuff. So I will start on page 245, uh, chapter 16, A Flying Start. The story of the use made of managerial cybernetics in Chile is a complex one. My own involvement in it was total. It seems to me that the posture of a neutral scientific advisor, in quotes, became untenable after the experiences of World War II, and especially since the full circumstances surrounding the Holocaust in Japan 1945 became known. This book has already tried to demonstrate that the role of System 4 is in cybernetic principle part of the command axis, and if it is not, then in political practice, nothing will happen. This, thus, I do not understand the outlook of the scientific overlords in Britain, for instance, who happily survive in government for a professional lifetime while parliaments of opposite tendency come and go. This is said for two reasons. Firstly, I think that the acceptance by both ministers and their scientists that scientific neutrality, which I take to be bogus, is possible, largely accounts for the confusion in Britain over such issues as the choice of energy sources, defense systems, transportation systems, and the like. And also, it accounts for the almost total failure to make good use of science in structuring the managerial process itself. Prime ministers of both parties, when determined to do something about swelling and inefficient bureaucracy, have promptly co-opted successful businessmen on a part-time basis to this obscure end. But the objectives of private profit and the public good are completely different. Businessmen do not understand the nature of a viable system, but only the notion of economic viability. And the problem is not a part-time affair. If only it were, surely we see in all this the abysmal failure of ministers even to perceive the magnitude of the problems they face, never mind to address them with competence. The second reason for the opening declaration is this. I am a cybernetician and also, as C. West Churchman calls himself, a research philosopher but I am certainly not a historian. Moreover, historians appear to be no less subjective than scientists when it comes to their dissensions. But it is better to rejoice in the human condition than to pretend to exist outside it, while yet in the corporeal substance. It follows that I can tell this story only in the first person, and in an autobiographical vein. Indeed, people who ask about the work always ask for details as to just how such an extraordinary undertaking came about and how it continued. This book is, however, about managerial cybernetics. Therefore, I have ruthlessly expunged from the story mere gossip and my own opinions. 
and have stuck to the facts as I knew them. But I have not dressed up those perceptions as to a <clears throat> pretense of objective omniscience. Moreover, I consider that case studies should reveal far more of the stresses under which the dramatist persona, who include the management scientists, operate than... Uh, what the hell? Who include the management scientists operate than they customarily do. There was plenty of stress in Chile. Thus, to complete the opening paragraph, I declare that I could have pulled out of, the, of Chile at any time and often considered doing so, but I did not, and therefore I hold myself accountable for the part that I played. Okay, anything on this opening bit? I, I, I apologize for the <laughs> uh, disjointed reading. Um, I'm fighting off a cold, and it's, uh, it's starting to get its claws in. Um, let's go to Brett. I'm just struck by how, for like, how how relatively biographical this chapter ends up being, how radically it starts off. Like he's saying things out there that are actually quite profound about science and about management. Then I think he just sort of breezes past them. But I think he, I don't know why he does it exactly, but I think it's, I think it's interesting to, to think about. Stafford drank a lot and he tended to write these books in the middle of the night. Um, I think, I think a lot of it, I, I kind of, I think maybe that was something someone brought up in a couple of previous session that, uh, some of these books were written on the side in between the day jobs. So it's quite possible he just sort of wrote, sat down and wrote the chapter end to end and um, didn't go over it too much uh, in editing. Um, Tom. Yeah, no, it just, this bit there, where it struck me where they're talking about getting the businessmen into run stuff like Shane you you like you know in Ireland how many times do people go on about getting like the fella from Ryanair Michael Leary to run like the health unbelievable health executive it's like every every day there's a letter into a newspaper going get Michael O'Leary from Ryanair in he'll sort out everybody <laughs> you know it's just it's kind of pathetic absolutely it was, it's, it still have this weird feudal mindset right they just want to install a new fucking lord. Um, the, the yeah, the, 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 those folks are more servile and fucked up than the like neo reactionaries, right, in Silicon Valley. Because at least they want to install fucking Steve Jobs or whoever, not just some dickhead who runs a fucking airline. Um, anyway, um, Mark, how's it going? Not getting any audio. Okay, let's let's go back to Tom and we can see if we can get audio from Mark later. Yeah, just at one point here, and he talks about the inefficiency of the bureaucracy. Like, I from what I've been listening to some so far uh, from the, I think I listened to all of it, but I haven't read all the book yet. But like, he doesn't seem to really highlight inefficiency, uh, bureaucratic inefficiency, that much. Am I am I missing out on that? Uh, I think his thing is more, it's, it's this bureaucratic ineffectiveness. Maybe, maybe inefficiency is not quite the right word there. Um, uh, let's see. Where was that bit? Um, ministers of both parties, when determined to do something about swelling and inefficient bureaucracy have, right. So this, this is the thing where everybody, in Britain is is whinging about like oh the NHS is so inefficient why 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 this kind of stuff like this um and maybe maybe a lot of these these organisations are sclerotic and and inefficient but getting getting the business dudes in to to fuck it up even further is is not the the sort of 
correct solution to, to that inefficiency, I think, is maybe what he's getting at. Um, Could he be getting see, at like the mm -hmm. kind of, you know, like, say, the the instinct, you know, say, in like, mm -hmm. say, UK education is just to, like, put layers of needless statistic and reports and, and yeah. that have no function, really. Like, their actual function is, it ends up being, like, the opposite of its intended function, you know. Um, so... I'm wondering, is he getting at that, like understanding the structure uh, that could get rid of whole systems of bureaucracy? Yeah, I think there's a fair bit of that to it, right? That um, that, that, that that's a good example of the kind of like business brain uh, mindset taking over, right? Like you you maybe start out with a a department that re or a, an organization that maybe really legitimately does have these kind of like efficiency problems. Maybe there's a kind of lumbering behemoth that that doesn't do very effectively. But then you get all these business school grads to come in, and they're of course their immediate thing is like, oh, like either install internal markets or do this like metricization of everything, um, and then you get a spiraling inefficiency. Like it's it's even more flooded with pointless activity. Um, so I think that's 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 a lot of what he's getting at there. That like, you know, when when government government brings tries to bring in um, business into the equation, it actually installs even worse uh, stuff. And like, you know, creating the internal markets just creates more friction and waste. Um, indeed. Um, let's see, Kyle. Yeah, I think uh, when we look at you know the sort of description of inefficiency, it's maybe a bit too imprecise uh, when we consider the organization the way that Beer does, right? Uh, you know, he's looking at sort of the uh, questions about morale, the questions about internal conflict, the questions about uh, miscommunication, the questions about uh, structural problems, and all of that can be kind of glossed as inefficiency, but it, it, you know, unless you're looking at the work process in a sort of Taylorist perspective, inefficiency is quite a nebulous term. Uh, and so it's it's like you, you could look at it that way. But I think that Beer is more interested in the interaction of the parts of the system than the, uh, you know, the, the, the details of the labor process, given that the VSM is a, is a general model and not a, not a specific one. The specifics is more what Taylor would deal with. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think that uh, you can see, quote unquote, inefficiency emerging from all the problems that Beer outlines, but it's uh, not his primary concern in this, in this book. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. Uh, let's see, Jeremy. So this, in the second paragraph, he says, the objectives of private profit, private profit and the public good are completely different. Businessmen do not understand the nature of a viable system, but only the notion of economic viability. And the problem is not a part-time affair. Um, this idea that there's something different between economic viability and a viable system is a huge theme in beer. Um, beer uses the Aristotelian term eudaimony, or eudaimony, I've, I've heard it pronounced both ways, to talk about a kind of general happiness and fulfillment of the people as a different metric 
of viability than just money. And it's very important to understand this. This is a big theme in his book, Platform for Change, where he says money is terribly important, but it's important because it's a constraint on eudaimony and that everything people do, they do to maximize eudaimony, understanding that money is going to be an, a constraint on the eudaimony project, but not that money is the goal. But a business person is just not trained to think that way. And so a lot of these issues about inefficiency of government and all that sort of thing are the result of a paradigm clash between an attempt to increase eudaimony being analyzed by someone who can only see things in terms of economic viability. So it, from the point of view of a business person, it's totally insane to throw money at a problem when the goal is eudaimony, because they don't even see eudaimony as a thing. They just don't, it's just not something they perceive. You might as well be, you know, giving, handing your money to leprechauns or something, you know. But to beer, the eudaimony is the important part. It is what the purpose of the project is. And so that's something that he mentions a lot in part four but doesn't really delineate the theory behind it, except in Platform for Change. And also in John Lee's epilogue to Platform for Change, where John Lee teaches you how to read the book. I've always found that very funny about Platform for Change. Um, yeah, uh, that there's a bit at the book, there's a bit at the back where somebody else explains how to read the book. Um, this is, a lot of this was reminiscent of the stuff we've been talking with uh, Tom about in the Marx and Nature series, which uh, as of now, only part one is out. Um, but yeah, the, 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 like even in Marx, you have this like focus on the split between use value and exchange value or value. Society that's built around literal like group psychosis. The, the exchange value, the monetary wage relation stuff is, um, is deranged, you know, by, by comparison. And it's, it's hopeless to expect that people who are trained in that kind of insanity would, um, would ever <laughs> figure out how to run anything properly and how to, how to make the world better. It's commodity fetishism. Totally. Indeed. Uh, who's up next? Let's see. Boast. Yeah, I just I want to piggyback a little bit. I'm just underlining that distinction, but while also trying not to repeat anything that other people have said. But um, I think that the distinction between like an economic viability and what beer is getting at is like a, a, a viable system um, really dances around the concept of crisis because it's all about these risk discounts into the future where like I can just as easily say, hey, it's more economically viable for me to sell all of my grain, all of my grain right now, all of my grains now sold and I have a bunch of profit. Isn't that grand? While if I have any conception of crisis, I would like to say, oh, well, no, if I want to maintain the grain that allows me to eat, you know, provide some level of eudaimony, um, I probably need to save some of it and not have immediate economic returns, which um, sometimes is not the case with these fresh out of uh, business school management types. Indeed. Uh, Matt. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 wild how like yeah, not, not like actual like business people, but you know people who are kind of like bought into like a, a capitalism on 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 some level really do think that you know like, like uh, you you can kind of uh, that that you know a profitability and uh, um uh, some version of eudaimony, even if they wouldn't necessarily use that term, you know, are ultimately aligned. Like you know, I I, I uh, yeah, it, it's 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 both like yeah, kind of heartbreaking sometimes, but also just very. Very, very, very funny, and yeah, like very, very grounding to watch him. A uh, 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 Shark Tank, or um, I guess um, I think there's one called um, Dragons Den. The same thing. That's the same thing in the UK. Um, uh, we're just you know, so like people think that oh, like this is a thing that would really help people, or yeah, you know, this is a product that, that works, and just they think that you know that necessarily means that it'll be a good business, and you know, just like watching stuff get shot down, and you know, having people, you know, ha having ha having the sharks are uh, um, uh, there's this uh, one in particular, uh, uh, um, uh, who calls himself Mister Wonderful, who just you know, he he's basically he's basically talking Marx, like you know, he, like, you know, he'll just say, he, he'll say it he'll he'll say words that like you know you would put in a caricature of you know of, of a capitalist of just uh, you know, that doesn't matter yeah what matters is the is the dollars and cents and you know this and yeah that, that, that's i love that it's like yes I, I believe you when you say that you think this would be useful to people but i i only hear money that's the that's the the thing they're interested in um jeremy just in a reply to Boast's comment, Beer in, I think it's in Decision and Control, is talking about the imperative to maximize shareholder value in the short term. The idea that the goal of the corporation is to maximize, you know, quarterly shareholder value and says, well, obviously the best way to do that is to liquidate the company and divide the dividends among the shareholders. You know, it just completely misses the whole point of having the company. You know, if you want to maximize it in the very short term, sell the company and just split the money. <laughs> you know, that, that the whole point of having a venture that goes any further than that is to do something different than maximizing shareholder value in the short term. We do totally get that, right? Like there's these vulture funds that just like swoop in and fucking liquidate whatever they, they take over. Um, also, I'm wondering, did, did Tom just get killed? Is like his, his camera went dead as soon as somebody in a black jumpsuit walked into the fucking frame. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, he's alive. Don't worry. <laughs> it's just very funny. It's <laughs> the last we hear from Tom. Uh, Kyle. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was just thinking about that whole thing about Dragon's Den, uh, which I think actually got started in Canada and then franchised out. Uh, you know, that... Th those those shows, and then The Apprentice built up this, you know, cult of the uh, capitalist in this really real way, and I just remember talking to a friend back in, like, I guess it must have been about 2007... And they were like, you know what makes America a great country? This is a Canadian friend of mine. Like, oh, America's a great country because someone like Donald Trump can make it. And it would, it would be amazing if, if, if he became president of the United States. He should do it. You know, he should do it. 
he he'd really fix things if he became president and uh I, th that conversation has never left me because everyone else in the room looked at, at this guy like, what are you talking about, dude? But I have rarely encountered in person such a bad take in my life. And that was <laughs> that was brought on by this mindset that that beer uh, highlights here. Do you ever think of that moment and just get fucking vertigo wherever you happen to be? And just like, Jesus, how did you actually like spot it coming from a mile off? It's, it's like that shit with the fucking Michael O'Leary, yeah, with the Ryanair thing. It's like our own watered down fucking Trump. Uh, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah um, well, actually, one of the guys on Dragon's Den, I think his name's Kevin O'Leary. He's a Wall Street piece of shit. Hmm. And, uh,. <laughs> He's kind of responsible for getting that show off the ground and, and became a, a TV personality for being this, like, utterly callous, uh, hateful bastard of a capitalist. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's O'Leary to O'Leary. Mm-hmm. Yep. Something wrong. Uh, not, Something wrong with not that Not good plan. folks. Yeah. <laughs> the, English, the English should have wiped us out when they had the chance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay um i think we can crack on with sort of the rest the, the rest of the chapter kind of this um autobiographical stuff i'm gonna kind of start just plodding through the plot points but if if anyone wants to pause and talk about a particular point uh do raise your hand and i'll we'll try to stop for that um but so beer kicks off that it, it began in summer of 1971 um he had just completed uh, most of the manuscript for Platform for Change. Um, and this book wasn't yet published. It was a manuscript that they were working off of. Um, he gets a letter from Chile. Um, basically, this... Um, so, uh, Salvador Allende has been elected the first ever like democratically elected Marxist president in, in history. Um, he's, he's got a minority government they're undertaking a program, like a Marxist program, to nationalize the means of production. Um, they've got this institution called CORFO, uh, Corpora uh, Corporation de Fomented Production, whatever. Um, it'll only be referred to as CORFO from here on out, though. Um, they have a national merchant bank. Um, and a lot of this stuff is being overseen by this guy, Fernando Flores, who's his main point of contact. Uh, Flores sends this um, letter to Beer because uh, Flores has been in, has, has read the stuff, right? He's, he's read the management cybernetics um, and he's, he's, he's saying, hey, look, can you come over and give us a, give us a shot at, at making this work? Uh, Matt, go for it. I, I, I wonder, like, how specific he's being when, when, when he says that, you know, the first, like, Marxist president, because I mean, like, you know, the, the SPD were Marxists and, you know, like, we're in control of government for, 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 for huh. quite a few years, both in Weimar and uh, in the German Empire. Like, though, like, I mean, obviously that wasn't a president, but like, it also makes me wonder, like, you know, like, you might not necessarily have known about, like, uh, you know, the SPD and stuff. Like, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he was, uh, uh, you know, he, he was weird in his own way, but I mean, like, you know, you, you, he was, he, he was a, uh, a management consultant, like, in the UK. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much he really knew about, um, you know, social democratic parties and stuff. And probably nil. Yeah. That's, that's a very good point. Um, I guess if if you if you define history as starting exactly after World War II, then uh, like like most uh, most Brits and uh, and Yanks do, then uh, yeah, this 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 does hold true. But yeah, that's a good point. Um, I guess you must not really be aware of the uh, the prehistory of these things. 
Um, so the letter is kind of saying that like they're going to tr- he want they want him to come over and try to implement these these ideas on a national scale. Um, we're going to rebuild the economy, these nationalized this nationalized economy on the grounds of scientific views and of management and organization. Um, they meet in London. Uh, of these kind of chats back and forth. Um, Beer goes to Santiago on the 4th of November, 1971. So that's a couple of months have passed. Uh, what happens next? Um, there's a group, right? There's this sort of group of initial uh, people who are, who are going, going at this effort. They, and the quote is, uh, the group of us works to exhaustion every day for eight days. Um, by the 12th of November, 1971, we had all agreed on the plan for the cybernetic regulation of the social economy of Chile. Um, he emphasizes the point of the real-time regulation. This is going to be something brand new, right? Um, real-time control of the social uh, social production. Um, what else do we have? Uh, he emphasizes the the points from earlier in the book that there's this huge problem with um, decisions being taken out of phase with the thing that they're supposed to be deciding on. So you take take six months to like process some data from I don't know some sector of industry, but by the time you've even been able to comprehend the data, the situation has already passed and you're already way out of date. So they're 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 gunning for real time uh, control here. Um, there's a little bit about how Chile doesn't have much in the way of computing power. Um, they have a couple of old mainframes and they have a pile of telex machines. Um, and that's about it. Um, so they dive into it. They knock up a couple of papers about, oh, so yeah, Jeremy, let's go for it. So in researching my article for Red Wedge, I actually looked at the computers and the specs of the computers he mentions. So I think this is a valuable point because you know, later on, even leftists say, oh, great, you wanted Skynet to run the country. That seems so Marxist. Great job, guys. But the the IBM 360 was a massively popular mainframe series in the 60s. But IBM at the time, I mean, we like to complain about Microsoft's restrictive licensing, but IBM in its heyday had restrictive licensing that was insane. Like, if you had an IBM mainframe, you had to hire two IBM employees who would work on premises, and they were the only ones allowed to touch the internals. So if you wanted to do something, there were some kinds of programming you could do, but if it was anything kind of close to the kernel or close to the metal, you had to have the IBM people do it for you after they got approval from corporate. So when Allende became president, everyone from IBM was sent out of the country. So every IBM mainframe computer in Chile only worked to the extent you could do the outside stuff with it because there was no institutional knowledge for working with the internals of the mainframe because only IBM was allowed to. It was proprietary information. So they were forced to switch to a Burroughs machine. And the Burroughs machine, I have some stats here. It was a small mainframe computer. It had 500K of RAM. It 
had a processor that was one um, megahertz processor. And um, it basically ran on COBOL, um, COBOL 68. But imagine that everything we're going to hear about CyberNet and CyberStride doing based on one of these things. I mean, Beer's Fantasy was to buy a bunch of mini computers and have a mini computer at each factory. And my micro computers didn't exist back then. But there was no money to do any of that. And there were embargoes that kept any of that from happening. So they basically had to budget cycles of computing time on mainframes that were doing a lot of other things on top of it. So, I mean, if you were a computer person at, uh, let's say, an, an a UK university in that period of time, you'd have a bunch of punch cards and you would schedule your programming time for, you know, say 3.15 a.m. You'd go in, feed the punch cards, get the output, Go home and analyze what you had done. That that was your time on the computer. And so they were basically doing that with this entire project with one Burroughs machine that basically had less processing power than a Casio watch. Well, maybe not. Maybe about mm. the processing power of... Casio keyboard. <laughs> yeah, or, or a, you know, a second, at, at best, a second generation Mac. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the point about the brain drain is, is very important. It's slightly later in the chapter, but like in the, in the process, like a lot of expertise had left the country because a lot of the means of production were owned privately by foreign firms. Um, they pulled out their, um, technical staff and a lot of the management, which meant that everyone that was left behind were Chileans who kind of didn't really know how to run their own means of production. It was a real, real brain drain problem. Um, let's see, Brett. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, we have, obviously we have vastly more computing power now, but um, he, he highlights the importance of doing this in real time. And we still don't have that, right? Like we're, we're trying to now, we're trying to now, now, analyze the coronavirus thing and what it's doing to the economy, but we're like getting data that's like a month old or two months old. So whenever the, you know, the jobs report comes out, you, you know, I was in the marketplace, I'll have myself there and they say, well, you know, this data is like a month old. It's probably all different now. <laughs> so we can't even really intervene in the economy in a way that would help people because we don't know what's going on. Even if it was political will, we don't know how many people are unemployed. We just don't know it. Um, yeah. And so to be able to do all of this in, you know, the seventies with this tiny computer, I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal if you think about it. Mm -hmm. I think this kind of system would need to be, uh, like, you're, you're right. Like, I mean, contemporarily, we often can't do this sort of thing. I think for these systems to be real time, they have to be designed to be real time and they have to be designed to be highly automated. Whereas, oh, email a bunch of spreadsheets to, to John and he'll, he'll look at them or that. It's, it, none of that is real time. Um, and it's, it's weird that even now with our highly advanced AI stuff, we still submit to batch processing for these kinds of things. Like, it's like, oh, we have a model to run. And you give it 30 hours to get very warm, and then it emits a number. Um, it's suspiciously similar to the punch cards thing, um, where you, you can't really get the results in real time. Which is also uh, why the unemployment system crashed 
so so heavily right when it started, at least in the U.S. Yeah, it's all batch processing, and there is no like real time system saying, "Oh, I'm employed now, give me my check." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, should be, it should be doable, you know. It should be doable, be, but be but we don't want to do it. Is the thing is part yeah. of it too. Uh, we don't want to get people their employment tax, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a certain malicious uh, stupidity to, to this uh, to this kind of stuff. Uh, let's see, Matt. So, uh, uh, you know, what, what, uh, uh, the thing in the back of our heads during Soul Story is just going to be, you know, like, what should they have done different? And, uh, um, yeah, what one, yeah, is talking about the, the, uh, the IBM people leaving? I think one, you know, kind of non trivial question uh, uh, is, should they have been allowed to leave? I mean, you know, you have the violence of the state at your disposal. You can stop them from leaving. And, you know, like, how personally, you know, like, uh, if, uh, uh, you know, they just said, hey, you know, you work for the Chilean government right now. And, uh, uh, you know, same salary, you know, did you, you do the same work you, know, you, did, you did before, you know, you, you have a different boss now. And I imagine most of them wouldn't care. You know, like, I, I think I, you, you're your typical engineer, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we, we, we are a species that generally lacks a physical courage. So, I mean, yeah. I feel like that would have gone okay, but I mean, who knows? <laughs> you get you get the same salary and the same uh, living quarters, but you get extra gun. <laughs> it might uh might have some kind of uh some kind of impact on morale, perhaps. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think by this point the the horse had bolted. Um, it seems that like beer wasn't called in immediately. Um, they were sort of scrambling to get stuff done, and it at some point became evident to Flores that they would need help in this. Matter. Whereas if if they were on the floor on the ground uh, before any of this happened, it might be possible to um, prevent the brain drain in various ways. Uh, Tom, do we know if um, they like Amazon or any of these crowds have or Walmart have these real time systems going? Mm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of tech firms have um, systems that are effectively real time. Like a lot, of, a lot of them are soft real time. Um, e- even at like, yeah. So like the, the Walmart and the Amazon stuff is, is mostly real time and is pretty high up there in terms of complexity. But like a lot of stuff is um, now able to use like real time notification synchronization sort of things. Like be- being able to shove bytes around a network in soft real time has been a solved problem for a while, and it's it's now gotten to a point where even even sort of run-of-the-mill JavaScript developers can handle kind of real-time socket communications in distributed applications. So it's the the expertise is there, um, both at the like the very high end and at the the sort of bottom level of, of tech expertise. Um, Kyle, yeah, just regarding the question of whether they should have coerced the uh, the engineers into staying, uh, I think at the beginning, you know, they were really they were sort of not they were hoping that they wouldn't become international persona non grata and they were also very much uh, opposed to the idea to becoming soviet dependents they they didn't want to fall into the soviet sphere of influence um and so you know uh detaining american engineers and saying, uh, you know, sorry, IBM, we're taking your staff, uh, would have definitely uh, pushed their position uh, into even more unfavorable territory than they had by electing a Marxist. 
Uh, it would have got them invaded right up front, right? You just got you just yeah. Got the, that was really the, the fear at the back of their minds, and uh, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't work out in the end anyway. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, given that this is we're recording on September 11th, uh, you know, we, we fucking are. That's right. We all know how this turned out. Uh, so yeah, yeah, September 11th is the anniversary of the, uh, the fall of. Uh, of the Inde government. It's mm-hmm. the original 9-11. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, fucking hell. Oh boy, pour one out. Um, uh, let's see, Matt. Okay, yeah, not not, 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 not hearing a, a, a lot of support for a Santiago wall. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, uh, what, what, what about, um, you know, more carrot and, and less stick? You know, just make them the offer. You know, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, but we'll 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 not only give you the same amount of money, we'll give you more money and uh, and uh, more uh, d- d- more uh, auton- autonomy at work. Uh, just work for us, and uh, uh, IBM might technically be able to sue you, but you know, with what court will you? You know, what, will they be able to get at you if you, if you're uh, mm-hmm. uh, playing government? I think you know. I, I think so. yeah. I feel like you also you kind of only need one of them to take that deal too, because that person can then train um uh, other people on you know how to how to do um uh, you know low level bare metal operations on the on the IBM machine. I I think that's a yeah. that's a fair point. But the only other thing I would mention is that they were also extremely uh, starved for foreign foreign currency, and those engineers mm. almost certainly would want to be paid in U.S. dollars. Uh, that, that's, yeah. that, that's, that's the only other point I would bring up. I like the notion of, um, getting them on the, the, like getting them on board with the, like, Hey, if you ever want to, if you ever want to work on the techniques of a highly liberatory project, uh, yeah, here's, here's, here's your chance. Or, you know, you want, you want to rewrite the front end in react? We'll, we'll, we'll let you do it. Your, your boss won't. Um, anyway, uh, Jeremy. I think it's really important to point out that the process of nationalizing the industries began under Fry, the Christian Democrat, before Allende came to power, that Corfo had been around since the 30s. So these Allende accelerated programs that already existed. One of the things that came up that set off the alarm bells for the Americans and for the corporate interests was in negotiating the nationalization of industries like nitrates and copper, which were absolutely crucially important to global industry. Um, Allende's people did the math, and they figured out that with Anaconda Copper, for example, that Chile was losing money every year that Anaconda Copper was operating in Chile, that the Anaconda wasn't paying taxes properly. They were extracting all of these resources and shifting all the costs to Chilean infrastructure. So in those negotiations, Allende's people did the math and figured out that they had been losing money for all these years. So in the negotiations of buying out the corporations, because Allende wasn't seizing anything, they were buying it out. They included the math of all the losses they'd had because of the operating practices of these American corporations, and the Americans completely freaked out at the very idea that they would be already charged for stealing from this country for decades. 
it really lost the Americans, and it's what caused the Americans to take a much more hostile tone than they did with the Fry administration. That's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of love the idea that, um, I mean, it didn't happen this time, but like the notion to present them with like a negative payout of like, you actually owe us this much, and we're going to take all your shit as well. Um, but anyway. Um, so I think we can probably crack on a small bit. Um, so the, the, the team starts, uh, they, put, they start writing up these papers. Um, they're proposing the like viable system model recursions of the whole economy. So you think of the like, governance slash economy as the top level, and it's made up of these, um, what do they call them? Departments or whatever. You know, so you've got health, education, finance, industry. You zoom into industry. Industry is made up of many sectors. You have food, textiles, automotive, heavy plant, and so on. Each sector is made of enterprises, and these are all viable systems down, down, down. This is your system, and then system one's nested inside it, and then each of those has the system one's nested inside it as well. Go down to enterprises, firms, uh, workplaces, down to like teams, and down to the individual workers. Um, it's all it's all viable systems up and down the stack. Um, there's a kind of remark here that will be elaborated on later where they sort of went through this process of discovering that there was a kind of recursion missing uh, somewhere in the middle, uh, ramas or branches of industry. So they kind of found over time that their their recursion didn't quite work and they had to like grow another layer in the middle to, uh, to correct the model. Um, interesting to see that happen on the ground, like in a, in a real sort of, uh, in a real case uh, where, you start out with your your model and then have to refine it to be like actually you know what if we introduce another if we split these recursions and do cell division then suddenly all of these problems melt away because now the model actually matches reality um uh yeah we have the emphasis on the planning as the continuous and adaptive process um information flows and so on um what he 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 emphasizes a lot of this the, the necessity for speed here that this was a extremely fast moving problem and that they would have to be similarly fast moving themselves to have any chance of catching up with it. Um, uh, yeah, Matt. Yeah, I, 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 I'd love to see, and I, um, I don't know if he just sort of like did it intuitively, but uh, um, like I bet there is a way to formalize like when to create like new recursions and new um, uh, new, new departments. Like, yeah, I, I think about this uh, with like how I use Evernote a lot. You know, like I can kind of see my thought process of like when I decide that something like deserves its own notebook. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's usually something to the effect of like you know, I, I, if if I'm looking for something, I I, I want to be able to hit, hit the right notebook and then uh, um, you know just get there very quickly. I, I guess kind of similar to how like, um, I guess hash maps <laughs> work, you know, just, it, it, it just never be that deep. And uh, yeah, like, I, I wonder if, if there is like a, um, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it probably does exist somewhere, you know, like the actual math of the variety engineering there, you know, that, that says, oh, okay, yeah, like, like we, we need another level of recursion, you know, um, uh, so yeah, I guess that's, um, you know, building variety um, uh, um, uh, 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 vertically, or, you know, maybe like a new, um, a new category, you know, building it horizontally. Yeah, yeah, definitely, right. Um, there's, from my experience, like the, a lot of folks in the kind of startup world seem to have a kind of intuitive understanding of when to, when to to do these kind of splits. Um, I think uh, I used to work at a place where one of the folks would say that like your your company breaks every time it doubles, 
right? That like if, if it doubles in size, it's going to have to be kind of reorged. Um, you have to do this like cell division process. I've also been part of um, companies and teams that have grown from like three people all the way up to 50 and gone through those kind of like stages where you, you everyone gets a sense, a niggling sense that like ah, there's, there's something awkward about the way this sort of stuff is working. There's something clumsy about it. And then that kind of gets a little bit worse the more stuff you add to it. And then you kind of reach this inflection point of like, no, no, we, we do actually need to subdivide into proper teams and focus on these things. Um, I, I, I keep referring to it as a process of cell division. I, I think it's at least visually feels very like the kind of thing I've experienced, or there's like a, just a kind of general tension and squirminess that then goes and you've got two, two separate things. Um, indeed. Um, so where are we? We're getting to this like second paper that they publish. Um, I think there's a nice bit here at the bottom of page 251 that is headed Project Cybersyn. It's where we kind of we find we get to the meat. Um, objective: to install a preliminary system of information and regulation for the industrial economy that will demonstrate the main features of cybernetic management and begin to help in the task of actual decision making by the 1st of March 1972. And at this was the middle of November. So they had four months to get this done. Um, and then they, they basically did it, which is kind of amazing. Um, like speed was definitely of the essence here. Um, what do we get then? We get a rundown of the component parts of this thing. So we have CyberNet, which networks all of the factories in the country in a, in a communication system. This is basically the system two um, sort of thing, right? It's the, the communications network that synchronizes all the stuff. Um, in this particular case, the intention was always to have this be a distributed thing. But in practice, because they only had one of these boroughs, three 3,500 machines, they had to have all of these telex terminals at each of the factories send their data to the centralized, to the, to the, to the one the big machine, to the mainframe. And then the mainframe would like kind of simulate a telecoms network. Like it would just, it would, it would play pretend that there was like a, a distributed network going on there. So it was like, I think what it, it, in terms of the information flow, it was still a kind of distributed sort of thing. But like in practice, it went through uh, one computer, much in the same way that like you can, you know, if you have a, if you're in programming, if you have a distributed system, you can still just like start all of the separate processes on your laptop and they're, it's still a distributed system, but it's on one node, that kind of thing. Um, that's what it feels a lot like. Um, uh, yes. Um, yes, at the bottom of page 252, we've got a uh, quote. Now, the intention of CyberNet was to make computer power available to the workers, committees in every factory. Um, so, the, yeah, they intended to make this happen all along. Um, he then goes into... Um, the the way they would like they wanted to like calculate the the algodonics right for each factory like the indices of performance that we we saw before the productivity and latency um and performance and all that sort of stuff um a lot of this is kind of recapitulating the the stuff that we've gone over before and we just calculate these indices update them regular um regularly like in soft real time like every couple of hours um and the system would be able to identify bottlenecks and all that kind of good stuff um, there's something very interesting here as well that like they would, they'd also measure absenteeism as a proxy for morale. 
So they weren't solely concerned with, um, you know, yards of linen and coats and lumps of steel that were going in and out. They were also setting up these like algodonic indices for uh, worker morale, um, of which, you know, absenteeism is a pretty decent proxy. Um, what else do we have? Um, the, 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 somewhere near the bottom of 253, then, is interesting. The teams were also to be instructed to make it clear that, as time went on, each participating factory would be free to add any index that it liked without, if it wished, declaring what that index measured, and the system would monitor it for that management. So the intention was always that the, the local workplaces would be able to program their own algodonics, um, and the system would help them keep track of it, even if the higher systems didn't necessarily understand what the point of the metrics were in the local factory. Tom. Yeah, just before that sentence, uh, in brackets, it said, <clears throat> in practice, it turned out that some 10 or a dozen indices were adequate to monitor the performance of every plant. And so by then, we knew the scale of the computer operation involved. Do we have any idea what these 10 or so indices were about? I actually don't know. Um, anyone got anything on that? Maybe Jeremy? No. Is Jeremy still around? No. Um, he may have dropped off. Um, I think we could probably... Oh, geez, I don't know. It might be mentioned somewhere else, um, or maybe there's some other literature on it. It would be nice to figure out what those were, um, what exactly they were measuring. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, okay, what else we got here? Um, yeah, and I, I think after, after that bit as well, then we've got... Um, uh, but before reaching the computer problem itself, we have to understand the human predicament of the people running these factories. Um, yes, yeah, so this is the bit with the brain drain as well, right? So like um, he's emphasizing that he's, they're, they're taking into account the human factors here. It's not just like you must produce X units of steel and uh, the algodonics is bayonet pointed at your back. Um, yeah, so the, the, the brain drain by capital that like a lot of these foreign owned industry uh, firms, uh, the management or the technicians had fled um, the country. Um, uh, da, 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 da. There's an yeah. So there's a very interesting point here that like uh, Chilean managers themselves at first took a rather passive role in the development of workers' control, but this noticeably evolved into an aggressive and negative attitude. Um, so the workers' committees left in charge, headed as they often were by an interventor, a man of knowledge, often an academic, selected to help the workers' committees unravel the problems needed tools which they personally could understand. Um, that's the sort of, the, the impact, the, the like class impact of this brain drain is that like, on the one hand, you have the, like, the technicians and the, the higher management, the knowledge workers leaving, leaving folks in a lurch. The managers that remain um, initially were ambivalent, but then took on a very hostile attitude to these workers, workers' councils um, or workers' committees. And then the workers' committees were often needing to work with um, these, like, appointed sort of chiefs, these, like, academics or whatever, who were helping them do their stuff. But in that case, they're, they're then still shackled to these fucking people. So we were saying up front that if, if this is actually going to work, we need to make the system so that it can be comprehended by workers who are a little bit behind on 
the skills in like self-management. Like it's, they can't just expect self-management to appear from out of nowhere because these, these, these workers committees, these workplaces are hobbled from the get-go by this, by this brain drain and this like class relation with their like management. Um, you have to actually make it easy for them to use these tools if it's going to have any kind of success. Um, let's see what else we got here. Um, there's mention of the, the operations room and the ergonomics of that, how they're going to do some design on that, um, that, uh, that famous operations room, um, which will pop up a bit later. Um, they, they're rushing to here to like get, get this plan in place and just get some teams going and just fucking do it. Um, on page 255, we have a baffling diagram of the, the plan as it stood at that time. And it's, it's a kind of, it's a flow diagram of like the, all these like dependent parts and stuff. And it's, geez, yeah, it's, it's remarkable that they got this stuff done in four months. It's, it's kind of astonishing. All the stuff that had to go on in parallel. Um, let's see then. What else we got? Um, then, so Beer goes back to England, I think, and he's going to take care of getting this software system cooked up because um, they're going to need this like software simulation stuff to like do the system three and four um uh four uh things um and he's going to take care of that while every everyone in chile is uh, working on getting the uh cybernet stuff in place and and doing initial design on the the uh, control room um, middle of page 256 has an interesting uh, intervention. Also included in the plan was a specification for an interdisciplinary team itself. It included the words, quote, beware of people who have carved out a piece of the field and who want to grow flowers on it, end quote. Of economics, that most relevant subject to this work, it said, no econometric models have yet proven adequate. We have to invent econometrics. Having listed all the specialities required, it said, important qualification for all. It limits the search. None of these professionals is to despise the professional area of any other. And then we finish off with the plan ended, quote, I return in March, end quote. Um, I like this thing where they're, they're, they're emphasizing that these, these have to be interdisciplinary teams and they can't tolerate any contempt for the other fields. Like they have to be able to work together. Um, monopolizing knowledge, monopolizing knowledge as class position and stuff. It just has to go out the window. Um, it's, it's nice that they spotted that up front. Um, so, uh, what this, yeah, we then get on to, um, going to meet President Allende and getting the go ahead for this. Um, uh, let's see, Matt. Yep. Uh, what does that proverb mean with, with the flowers? Uh, beware of people who have carved out a piece of the field and who want to grow flowers on it. It means um, people who have like captured a part of the the space and want to tend their own garden on it. Um, imagine imagine a football field on which someone decides, oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking mark off this little six meter square plot and just grow flowers on it and fuck everyone else. You know, um, it's you, you, you can't have people camping out on specialities and. Uh, you know, control positions in, in these things. Um, so imagine all the, all the mathematicians get together and say, no, 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 we're, we're fucking special. We're going to monopolize this knowledge 
and uh, we'll we'll be the gatekeepers of this of this project because this little patch belongs to us. Um, I think that's what they're getting at anyway. Um, but did I hear something? No. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's what Bure was getting yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very distinctive click from the, uh, the, the Yeti microphone unmuting. Um, anyway. Um, so they get the go ahead from, uh, President Allende. It's interesting that all this, like, frantic work, this eight days of madness was happening without the official nod, uh, from the top. But anyway, um, yeah, um, I think this stuff is interesting, yes. Like, that Dr. Allende had been forthright on this occasion, as he always remained. He particularly wished to be satisfied that the plans were decentralizing, worker particip participative, and anti-bureaucratic. Um, so that concern is there from the beginning with Allende. It's there from the beginning with Beer and, and everyone, right? Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, he had to, had to do this to get the sign-off. Um, there's this bit as well about, like, the... Um, well, hey, look, if we could do this real-time economy stuff, why hasn't, and like, if, if we're going to do it and leapfrog over the uh, first world, why hasn't the first world done it? Um, and Beer says it's because they did not understand managerial cybernetics, the third world would leapfrog over their backs, uh, given such understanding. Um, there's this concern then about like how, yeah, how, it, so like, the I'll just I'll just read the quote. The president said that Chile might very well do it. The idea had his blessing. But how could a small socialist state continue to exist in a capitalist milieu? The notion of a cybernetic recursions was thereby invoked. I still cannot answer that question. Uh, yeah, like you're aware up front here that this is this is a, a big fucking problem, and um, the re there's, there's, he doesn't have an an a clean answer to it, aside from you know do your thing and challenge them uh, and kind of, kind of hope that things go well. Um, um, and then we get that lovely bit at the end with uh, System 5 is the people. Um, and then Beer finishes the chapter with this remark, as I have said, have, as I have previously attested, had a profound effect on me. If the com uh, Comparino Presidente had a weakness, and which of us has not, it was a certain pride in his office. He liked to dress up. He liked to wear his sash. He liked to sit on his throne-like chair in La Moneda. But when it came down to cybernetic science, he, System 5, was the people. He was eventually to die in that exact posture. This meeting and that abandoned meal being over, I returned to London on the 13th of November, 1971, with all the plans in hand. Ten days. Uh, yeah, that's that's a fucking that's a fucking sad one for the end of the chapter, right? It's like, yeah, he's obviously referring to the the Allende um, uh, suicide uh, at the the end of the siege, um, sitting in that that that, that, uh, that big chair, but also that yes, like symbolically, you know, uh, or like as a as a as a functionary, the president is is this like avatar of the people and is, is bound to um to enact their will and when yeah when when Allende blows a skull off it's the end it's the end of the people as well um it's, it's just the end of that of that democracy um so they didn't they didn't just kill Allende they killed off an entire social or uh, democratic organization um tom 
Yeah, just when he's talking about the um, how he still doesn't have an answer for uh, that um, notion of uh, recursion into the capitalist system. Like um, <clears throat> I know in the next, uh, it's in the next chapter where they talk about modeling the system for, you know, with a computer model, um, you know, basically trying to model international trade, foreign exchange, blah blah blah. You know, I doubt they had. Uh, <laughs> I doubt they had like that probability of like getting shot in the presidential palace or the troops put into those models. Um, it would seem like a very, you know, you can kind of see materially how beer is coming out of management science with a kind of a, you know, just a, a normal corporate business kind of view of things and not a view of, you know, what happens if, you know, Hitler, what's the chances Hitler will invade or, you know, whatever the hell, what are these like geopolitical stuff? How do you model that stuff? That seems to be something like if you were to try and <clears throat> it, it seems to me something that's entirely left out of the Chilean product project and something that, um, you know, as commies, we need to think about for our own party structures or whatever we want to do because those systemic high level like absolutely destroy an entire viable system type events are baked into the cake for our political project yeah i'm definitely with you there um i kind of i kind of wonder right like that um I mean, you mentioned this sort of thing of like, yeah, it's like they they didn't they don't account for this possibility of like a sort of Hitler-like figure just rising up and destroying them. But I kind of wonder if that's it's precisely because it's this like Cold War um, middle period, like the post-war malaise and stuff, that it in context it might have seemed uh, like things would go more smoothly because um, it might have it might have seemed more like that. Oh well, we're we're past all that horrors of war shit like it's like they're, they're not gonna fuck it they're not gonna fuck us over that hard whereas for us sitting here today i think we're very accustomed to the notion that um like the the bourgeoisie and like these these capitalist states will be get will get even more depraved and and uh, ridiculous in their in their attempts to suppress anything um as as they as they're more threatened and they, they they retreat further and further um that might not have seemed as evident like the, the the depravity of the way that the U.S. went after Chile might have actually been surprising, but then Castro did see it coming. Castro did did warn them to like arm themselves, so maybe but, not. But then there's also this thing that like beer was a kind of a kind of you know he was from a fairly comfortable sort of life, you know. Probably but not even not not even like I mean more so it's a critique of Allende and like as in you know you had the. Coup in Brazil in '62. You had Guatemala. You had you had what's going on in Cuba. You've had you've had just like yeah. all over the place. You know that stuff going on. Like I'm sure there's. Like, I just I'm, I was looking for a timeline of all the ones around that time. There's, I'm sure there's loads of them. You had one in in um, in Bolivia. You had a dictator. I know that. You know so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess my my theory there isn't as plausible. Um, yeah, it's 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 strange. It's anomalous. Um, but anyways, let's see, uh, who's got their hand up most. Uh, boast, you're extremely muted. Oh, sorry about that. Um, 
So actually, I think that it's interesting that um, when Beer came to this conclusion that like uh, Salvador Island had represented the people, um, I think that was definitely an outgrowth of Beer's own uh, fetishization of democracy and democracy's outcomes. Um, because I, I feel like specifically with System 5, System 5 at this point could be anyone um, not necessarily representing the people, but representing the, the authority that kind of compels the country. Um, so I just kind of like, I, I think that it's interesting to look at, um, like if, if Salvador Allende was the people, was this identity that the people had constructed, um, is it possible that that identity or that relationship had died before Salvador Allende did? Yeah. I mean, um, like we'll, we'll get further into it in the coming chapters, but things had, things had sort of spiraled out of control a bit by that point. Um, is, uh, yeah, I mean, all of this, all of this, all is all in the context of increasing pressure from the U.S. They're all they're under embargo constantly, and the um, the escalation of problems is is deeply sort of entwined with that. So it's 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 more that like the U.S. really did its best to cut off the oxygen supply to the the people system, and uh, eventually cut off the oxygen supply to the the avatar of the people system. In a, in a much more physical way. Um, but by the time you get to the, the presidential palace being fucking bombarded, like it's the, that it's, it's, it's already lost basically. Um, okay. Uh, we got any closing remarks on this chapter? It's a fairly light one. It's, it's a good read, but, um, there's, there's not that much to go over. I don't think, I think we've, we've covered a lot of the, the really good stuff. Um, no, all good. Fantastic. I'm good here. Cool. I think we can wrap. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, what are we doing next time? We're doing chapter 17, uh, which does pick up a bit more with the narrowly uh, details. So we'll we'll go over that more slowly. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks everyone. It's been it's been wonderful as always. I'll catch you next week for chapter 17. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 Bye.